Today's reading is 1, cha 1 Samuel chapter 12. You can find this on page 281 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back. So that's the book of 1 Samuel chapter 12. Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I am old and gray and my sons are here with you. I have been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these things, I will make it right. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and also his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your ancestors up out of Egypt. Now then, stand here, because I am going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, so he sold them into the hands of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazel, and into the hands of the Philistines and the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned. We have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah and Samuel. And he delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you so that you lived in safety. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now, here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him, and do not rebel against his commands. And if both you and the king who reigns over you 
follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Now then, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called on the Lord and that same day, the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people all said to Samuel, pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid. Samuel replied, you have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet, if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please, yes, take a seat. And if you have 1 Samuel 12 in front of you, you might find that helpful as we're going along. I'm going to begin um, with a question, and the question is this. Does rejecting God have consequences? Does rejecting God have consequences? We've been working through 1 Samuel together from chapter 8 onwards. And if you can cast your mind back to the beginning of the series, uh, the people came to Samuel and said, we want a king. Samuel wasn't happy. He told them it was evil to ask for a king. Uh, God said to Samuel, yes, this is a rejection of me, uh, but give them a king anyway. And then there was a bit of a comedy sequence of how the king came to be, uh, came to get his crown. Uh, there was a donkey involved. There, were, there was baggage that he was hidden amongst and all, all the rest of it. But last week, Saul was confirmed king with a great victory over the Ammonites. And you'd be forgiven for thinking, well, All's well that ends well then, right? Uh, okay, maybe it was wrong to ask for a king, but everything seems to have worked out just fine. Does rejecting God really have any consequences? Uh, that might be a question that, that troubles you on, on some level. Maybe you can think on a big scale or maybe a small scale. Uh, on a big scale, you, you might think of someone like Stalin. 
you know, whose gulags killed 60 million people, and yet he died in relative peace and comfort. Uh, Maybe closer to home on a smaller scale, you might know people in your workplace or your family, uh, your friendship group who've behaved in ways that are deceptive or, or bullying. You might see people in charge of ministries who've committed great evils, but they never come to light. Uh, There are no repercussions for them. And you think, well, do they just get away with it then? Does rejecting God have any consequences? Well, 1 Samuel 12 is here, and it's like a pause in the action where Samuel brings all the people back together and says, hang on a minute. Did you think God forgot about what you did? It's a trial scene. It's Israel's day in court. As Samuel brings the charges Uh, back before them. There are a lot of links to chapter 8, mention of Samuel and his sons and their request for a king. He's bringing them back and says, whoa, 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 hold your horses. We need to actually deal with this. Uh, And it's a great courtroom scene. I love a courtroom drama. Uh, I'm going to share my age now. You know, something like A Few Good Men, Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson. All the students look absolutely perplexed. Never heard of it. Uh, Great courtroom drama. A good courtroom drama, what often happens is uh, the the prosecutor starts their case and you think, oh, where are they going with this? And the questions weave in and out and all the rest of it. And then there's this moment of realisation. All the truth becomes clear. Uh, And it's a little bit like that in our passage. Uh, We're going to look at it under two headings. And the the case, the trial really, is verses 1 to 18. And in verses 1 to 18, it's all about showing us the guilt of the people, the guilt of the people. uh, Peter's already helpfully walked us through some of this. Uh, To understand it uh, properly, uh, it's useful to see how the relationship worked between God and his people. We've got a diagram uh, here, which will come up on the screen. There's God and his people, and he wants a relationship with them. But what God has always done is he's chosen somebody, a mediator. We hear about a few of them in this passage. Uh, Moses was the first one. He he picks someone to say, right, you're going to be the go-between. I'll speak to you, and you speak to the people for me. And so they're the dynamics of the relationship. Okay, God, the mediator, uh, and the people. And that possibly helps us understand why Samuel does what he does in this trial. So as Pete laid out, the first five verses, Samuel considers himself. He is the mediator. The the relationship's moved on, and he's the current prophet of God, the current one who goes between God and his people. Uh, And so in verses 1 to 5, Samuel talks about himself, and he says, who have I defrauded in verse 3? Who's Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Who have I oppressed? And then in verse 4, the people say, you've not cheated or oppressed any of us. You've not taken anything. And Samuel, in verse 5, gets them to the point where they will say, the Lord is witness. And they say, he is witness. And so Samuel says, look, I've done nothing wrong. So if there is a problem now in the relationship between God and his people, it's not Samuel's fault. So then he moves on to the Lord. He puts God on trial, so to speak. In verse 6, he reminds them, it is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron. There's a little dig there, because in the past in this relationship, it's always been God who's appointed the leader, who's chosen the leader. But since chapter 8, the people have said, no, no, we want a leader. We want to pick our own leader. 
So there's a bit of a dig there at them. Uh, he brought uh, Moses and Aaron to bring you up out of Egypt. And then verse 7, now then, stand here, because I'm going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. That word righteous is a, a technical law court word. Uh, he's going to prove God to be in the right. He's going to justify God in this matter. Because God has always acted righteously. And so he reminds them of this pattern where they cry out to the Lord in verse 8. And the Lord responds in grace and kindness. He sends Moses and Aaron to get them out of slavery in Egypt. And then later on in verse 11, when they get into trouble again, the Lord sends Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and all the other judges. Time and again, whenever the people have needed God, he has been there for them to rescue them. He has given them what they needed. He has given them the leader that they needed. And so Samuel is laying it on thick and saying, look, God has done nothing wrong. I've done nothing wrong. God's done nothing wrong. And, and like a law case that comes circling into its conclusion, there's only really one option left, isn't there? If you remember our relationship dynamics, if God's done nothing wrong and Samuel's done nothing wrong, there's only one contender left. It's the people who are in the wrong. And we see it in verse 9, how they've, they've behaved in the past. They forgot the Lord their God. And time and again in Judges, we read, they sin and forget and forsake God in verse 10. If this relationship's going off the rails, it's not because God has failed to keep up his end, but it's the people. But then it gets worse. Verse 12, when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. One thing that is telling in this passage is that Saul is not named. I wonder if you noticed that as it was read out. They refer to the anointed. They refer to the king, the king you have asked for, but Saul isn't named. There's a little bit of wordplay in the original uh, because Saul's name is Sha'ul in Hebrew, but the word for asked is Sha'al. And so there's a little bit of wordplay going on where uh, he's saying, the king you asked for, that sounds a lot like Saul, uh, the king you've asked for, the one you've asked for, is highlighting this is your request. This is what you wanted. Rather than letting God raise up a leader for you, you've asked for one. And you're asking for trouble. There are going to be consequences to this request. Because the king they asked for was a king like the other nations. A king like Nahash, king of the Ammonites. Do you remember him from last week? The vicious and violent and vindictive Nahash. That's the kind of king they wanted for themselves. Not a kind king, like the Lord had shown himself to be time and time again. And it is a great evil to have rejected the king in this way, uh, to reject the Lord in this way. And it will have consequences. And they're just hinted at here, but you can see them in verse 14. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, 
Good. Now they've picked a king, that king is going to have to follow God as well. In fact, the king's performance is going to affect the people. By choosing a king, they are placing his, their future in his hands. It's not just the people who have to obey now, the king has to obey too. And if the king doesn't obey, there will be consequences. And if you read through the book of 1 and 2 Kings, you see this time and again. As every new king comes to the throne, the first thing that's said about them is whether they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord or evil. And kings who do evil in the eyes of the Lord, there are consequences. The king, the kingdom, and the people are punished. Eventually, you get a king so wicked, the king Manasseh, who does so much evil that God says, right, there are big consequences. The Babylonians are going to come. They're going to conquer you. They're going to overwhelm you. They're going to take you away to a foreign land. And you will be conquered. They have put their future in the king's hands. And there are going to be big consequences for that. And just to underline the seriousness of this moment, verses 16 to 18, there is a dramatic sign. At the time of the wheat harvest, there was never rain in Israel. It was early summer. And yet Samuel says, God is going to show you what he thinks. He's going to send thunder and rain upon you. It's a dramatic moment. It is a bit like the judge bringing down a gavel as as a moment of, that's it. It's all clear. This dramatic sign reveals what God thinks about the situation. He is not okay with what they have done. Their guilt has become clear. That's the guilt of the people. Now I wonder, how do you respond when your sin is exposed? How do you think people ought to respond when their sin is exposed? There's lots of different ways you you could respond, right? Um, You could... um, Shift the blame. Well, it wasn't really my fault. You have to understand that so-and-so was really responsible. You could minimize it or deflect. Is it really that big of a deal? Uh, You can deny it or avoid it altogether. Uh, They call that gaslighting, don't they? Where you just say, no, it didn't happen like that. Nope, not at all. Well, do you see that Samuel's case and the way he has built it means all those options are cut off. They can't blame anyone else. Because they've already admitted Samuel's not to blame, God's not to blame, no one else is to blame. They can't really minimize it because they've just had this miraculous sign from heaven, thunder and rain, that says this is actually quite a big deal. And there's no gaslighting God because his record and the evidence is, you know, you can't deny it. And so there's only one option left to them, which is in verse 19. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. The only thing left is to admit. You are right. We are guilty. We are responsible. But admitting is by far and away the best option. It doesn't get rid of the consequences. The consequences are there now. And when we admit Uh, our failings, there may be consequences for us as well. It doesn't necessarily get rid of the consequences, but what it does do 
is admitting sin is a gateway to God's grace. It's a way of opening ourselves up to the hope God wants to pour into our lives in the situation, which is our second point, the hope for the people. And you can see lots of hope in just these verses. There's more hope than I can get through. You know, first of all, Samuel says, do not be afraid. It's a great starting point, isn't it? I think fear does stop us confessing our sins. Fear of consequences, fear that it will be the end of everything. But Samuel gives words of comfort. Admitting your sin means you can start to deal with any fears and allow God's grace and hope to get to work in your lives. And there's lots of hope here. There's the hope of God's pursuing them in this relationship, God's care for them. He's taken all this trouble to show them their sin, but, but that's actually a sign that he cares. If you have a good friend and they are sinning against you or they're doing something that's actually putting your relationship with them in trouble, well, it wouldn't be a loving or a kind thing, would it, to just let them carry on? If you care about that relationship, if you want it to grow and flourish and thrive, at some point you're going to have to confront them with it because it's the only way you can grow into deeper friendship. So actually, God taking the trouble to show them their sin is a sign of hope because it's a sign that he cares. Uh, there's more hope though. Verse 22, for the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people. And if you were an ancient Israelite and you heard about the great name of God, your mind would go back to that time when God revealed his name to Moses on the mountain. And this is what he said in Exodus 34 this is my name, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Uh, a reminder there at the end that, that there may still be consequences for sin. And yet look at all the language of God's grace and his compassion and his forgiveness. I think one reason we struggle to admit our sin is because we don't think we'll be met with grace. One of the things they say about the sort of social media culture that, that's, that's around us is it's very short on forgiveness. People will be held to account, and even if they say sorry, that it won't be forgiven. And maybe you fear that God will be a bit like that. Well, Samuel says, no, no. Remember his great name. He forgives wickedness and rebellion and sin. There's the hope of still having a relationship with the God of, of life. Uh, so there's this dynamic in these verses of you can turn to the Lord or you can turn to idols. The Lord is the living God, the God of life. Idols are useless here or, or empty or, or nothing. Uh, the choice God always puts before his people is serve me or serve idols. And the Bible says we become like what we worship. So if you worship the God of life, that is a choice to embrace life. But if you worship an idol which is nothing and empty, that is a choice to embrace death. That's the choice God puts before his people. Choose life or death. 
puts me in mind of a, an old stand-up routine from when I was a sort of student or that kind of time, uh, from Eddie Izzard, maybe you remember it, where he's about cake or death. Cake or death, he says, and it's a pretty easy choice, isn't it? Do you realize that's, like, the choice that God gives is life or death? Uh, he puts that choice before his people, but the choice, the offer of life, is still there. And then in the final three verses, we get God's provision. He provides Samuel, who will pray for the people, who will teach the people, who will warn the people. And so we have all those bits of hope sprinkled through those last few verses. And that all comes to the people after they've admitted and confessed their sin. Do you see why admitting to God what he already knows is by far and away the best option? But as I look at that list, I can't help but think that as New Testament believers, this side of Jesus, we have all that hope, but magnified so much more. Our, our sin has been revealed to us in the most obvious way possible as we see Jesus on the cross. That, that shows human sin at its worst, right? And God's name has been revealed to us in God the one and only who's come full of grace and truth. And Jesus has died and risen again to defeat death so that his offer of eternal life for all is credible. And as our risen king and prophet and priest, he stands before the Father praying for us. He sends his Holy Spirit to instruct and guide us. How much more hope for us is there, this side of the cross? What a wonderful thing we have. Sin does have consequences. We will feel those consequences in the here and now. But don't run from it, don't hide from it, because it's in admitting to that sin that the grace of God can get to work and bring hope. Sin has consequences, but consequences don't put us beyond hope. And I think 1 Samuel 12 is there, both to acknowledge and confront that sin is serious, it does have consequences, but also to give us assurance and confidence that when we're confronted by our sin, we have hope and we can return to the God who is full of grace and full of compassion. We don't have to be in despair. I, I don't know about you, I find that a very helpful and uplifting message for me personally and for our world. I'm going to pray and then the band uh, will come and lead us in a song that reminds us that we're, we're never alone, we're never away from God's grace. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for its honesty as Samuel rebukes the people and shows them their guilt. Thank you for the hope in the passage, which shows us your wonderful character. And thank you that in Jesus we see that character even more clearly expressed. Thank you that in Jesus we have a king who will follow and obey you to the very end. And if 
The king who reigns over you follows the Lord your God. It is good for you, for us. We thank you and praise you for that blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.